0: It's much more difficult for us to distinguish in the data to say this customer is using crypto for remittances versus arbitrage trading, for example, between different crypto platforms. So we know that the rise in adoption in Africa for the last 10 years is primarily driven out of need and it's been largely from a grassroots level perspective.
1: Hello and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. If you've been glued to your laptop watching Bitcoin prices go up, then you may have missed the much anticipated release of the 2023 Geography of Cryptocurrency report. It's the most comprehensive analysis you'll find on regional crypto adoption. Today I'm speaking with one of the contributors to the report, Marius Wrights. He's General Manager for Africa at LUNO, one of the leading crypto exchanges in the region. LUNO operates in hundreds of countries around the world, many of which are on the African continent. Marius and I discuss the differences between South African arbitrage traders and the more retail and remittances focus of their Nigerian customers. Marius shares his early journey into the crypto industry and highlights the importance of education to bringing new users on platform. And of course, we can't let a week go by without talking about the regulatory landscape. South Africa is quite progressive in their approach with a license scheme specifically for crypto businesses being required before the end of 2023. And after the conversation, if you want more data on what's going on in sub-Saharan Africa, well, head to the show notes and you'll find links to the blog and to download a copy of the 2023 GEO report. Today, I'm joined by Marius Reitz, who is general manager Africa at LUNO. Marius, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Ian. Yeah, thank you very much for having me today. look forward to the conversation.
1: I think you absolutely qualify as being crypto OG, right? You've been at LUNO for over eight years in a variety of different roles. You're now running the show on the African continent, which I'm excited to talk to you about. But I, I'm always curious how people, particularly people of, of your vintage, who have been in crypto for a long time, like how did you first encounter cryptocurrency and then what made you want to move into the space professionally?
0: So my, my crypto journey started in 2015, it was actually by chance, so I was, I was still in my traditional accounting role, eight to five, and um, one of Luno's co-founders, Peter Haynes, who was the, the CFO at the time, pinged me on LinkedIn. He was saying that, listen, BitX, which was Luno's first name i just went through a fundraise with Naspers. and so Nasperh is a, is a is an African tech uh, holding company with shares in Tencent. Uh so Naspersh at the time just invested I think five million dollars into into BitX in twenty the end of twenty fifteen. So obviously being a share trader myself, Naspers attracted my attention. Um and I think I was due for a new challenge in any case. So I worked in business rescue work, uh, uh, audit and accounting work. So yeah, I think in general, I was I was up for a new challenge. So I, I took the interview, I had a couple of conversations, uh, a couple of uh, barbecue surprise on the balcony of the small BitX office. Um, and then I think ultimately, I think what, what convinced me to join the team was the global nature of the operations. Uh, there was opportunity for me at the time to work with Nigerian customers, Nigerian uh, stakeholders, similar at the time, Luna was active in Malaysia as well, Luna had just launched in Indonesia. There was a, a, a reach in operations across emerging markets, mainly Africa and Southeast Asia. So that was that was quite appealing, I think, um, being able to work across many different currencies, different cultures. But uh, of course, I didn't have that good understanding of the technology behind Bitcoin. So um, for the first year, I still wore 100% finance hat, the, the debits and the credits. Um, but I think, due to the the nature of startup companies, um, I think we were I think I was number thirteen or fourteen at the time. You know, the the, the hands on nature of of the business. Um, I was helping out in customer support and compliance and a bit of marketing. But the the, the real first encounter that I had with crypto users, the crypto early adopters, was um, midway through 2016 when a and, and I uh, traveled to Nigeria. Um, it was just six, six months after LUNO launched its, its operations in Nigeria, and we hosted a LUNO slash Bitcoin meetup in Lagos in 20, uh, mid-2016. Now, that was very, very early on. <laughs> And we managed to manage to fill the. It was called the Co-Creation Hub, which is a which is a startup incubator co workspace in Lagos. Managed to fill that that venue, um, and wow. the the just the enthusiasm and and the interest from from the Nigerian public was just you know just mind blowing. And and I think the, the key point there is that at, at first hand experience the challenges that that people. You know, the mass market experience on a day-to-day basis in, in terms of the I think unmet needs or needs not being met by the traditional financial system. Um, and yeah, you know, and, and I think from there I started to getting more involved in, in other aspects of the business and, and started interacting more with customers as well.
1: Now in 2016, what was the landscape of crypto like in in South Africa when you took the job? You left your accounting job, which is probably seen as very secure and you know conservative role, and you jump into this startup crypto company. Did your friends and family look at you like you were crazy?
0: Um, yeah, I think there were many skeptics out there. Um, I yeah. did convince my, my dad to also invest in, in, in Bitcoin in 2016. So I think very wow. uh, no regrets from his side. But um, yeah, so I think the, the market was, was mainly retail, uh, retail market, early adopters, trading volumes on, on, on Linux exchange and then ESSA was, was low. I think only until the 2017 bull run from, from June 2017 that, that we see volumes on, on the exchange spike. Yeah, it, it was very, very slow going in countries like, like Nigeria um, and countries like Malaysia. And I think the, the challenges were very and right. I think there was a complete lack of, of education. So we had to do a lot of educational work. We, um, we also started operational challenges at, at the time. So it was not as safe and, and, and well, we tried to make it as safe as possible. Um, and, and that's the nature of centralized exchange acting as an intermediary. But it was not as easy as possible for our customers to, to transfer Naira or Rands or, or Ringgits from their bank accounts to Luna to purchase crypto. So that was one of the biggest challenges still at the time. Um, liquidity, of course, and the markets were not as liquid as they are today. So that was also a challenge for us. It was not only smooth sailing, that's for sure. The journey has been riddled with you know, roadblocks and challenges. Um, and and we, we, we take the long road, right? We follow an approach of localization We establish a local presence in each of the markets in which we operate. Uh, we have put local boots on the ground. As a result of that, you know, we, we, we wholeheartedly believe that that's still the best model for us today to make it as safe and easy as possible for public to, to dip their toes in crypto. I think as a result of that, we, we have had to, to, to manage quite a number of, of, of challenges over the last couple of years.
1: Tell me more about that. So Luno's in 40 countries around the world today. Is that is that right? I recall that from the notes when I was researching. You know, like where in the world do you see the the most interesting market opportunities or and conversely, maybe some of the biggest challenges?
0: We, we have customers across 40 markets globally. We are active across... Three continents: Africa, Asia-Pacific, um, and then also Europe. We um, have just over 13 million customers globally at this moment, but the largest section or portion of our customer base um, being being in emerging markets. So between. SA, Nigeria, and Malaysia, and we, we view those three countries as our as our core markets. We um, have offices around the world, so Cape Town is our global operations hub, so we have a team of just over 300, 350 team members based in Cape Town. I'm based in Johannesburg, Johannesburg is our African HQ, um, and then we have our global HQ in, in London, so we also have a, team, have a team on the ground there. And then local teams in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, Jakarta, Indonesia, um, and then also in in australia so i think we, we spread out across the world but we have our our base family set in in south africa i think probably around two-thirds of of our global workforce being based in africa and we, we follow a similar model in, in most of these markets and i think that is what we're good at that is the skills and expertise that we've built up since launching in 2013 and by the way we are celebrating our 10-year anniversary this year and congratulations and, uh, that's all no, amazing. thanks a lot i think um you know i think we were probably one of the first crypto traditional crypto exchanges to exist back then and I think we're one of the handful of crypto exchanges that existed back then that still exist today. And i think of Bitstamp and, and Coinbase and those those names. It's been thin eventful years. Um and um yeah i'm just grateful. You know, I think the one thing that's very clear is that still there's still a growing demand for cryptocurrency and especially in emerging markets and, and uh you know that that is you know what what gets us up in the morning.
1: I'm curious about the, the perspective, given that you're operating primarily in emerging markets, thinking about the role that LUNO plays. I mean, obviously you're providing custody and you're facilitating transactions, but I'd have to imagine there's a lot of education that goes into it as well, like explaining just the basics of how do you purchase cryptocurrency? How do you hold cryptocurrency? You know, what are all the different cryptocurrencies? Is, is that the case?
0: Definitely, definitely. Uh, I think it's and it's it's no easy feat to, to educate uh, people that know nothing about crypto, yeah. and, I, and I think that's that's the role that we play. We see ourselves as an intermediary. We don't we don't try and convince people to invest in, in Bitcoin or to to invest in any crypto asset. We provide people with information and the knowledge to do their own research, um, and then we provide the safe and easy to use platform um, and products for them to into the space. So it's it's a, it's an ongoing process. Um, we obviously have many efforts that run through marketing through the traditional channels uh, in terms of social media. Um, we also host in-person meetups. We, we also have education um, built into the app. So we've contextualized many of our products and services from a crypto perspective as well. So we, we educate the customer through that journey. But it's been tricky, right, because especially if you operate in emerging markets, because uh, there, there are many challenges. And if, if you look back to 2015, 16, the, the three or four African markets that the, the continental leaders back then from a crypto adoption perspective, they are still the leaders to this day. South Africa, Nigeria and Kenya, right? And then there's a long tail of other smaller markets that also increased volumes, or transactional volumes, but only slightly. And I think the, the main challenge with expanding into as many markets as quickly as possible is firstly around education you can't create a crypto market out of nowhere in each of these markets replicate localized effort in terms of setting up local entities local regulators local bank accounts um, and so what we had to realize very quickly was that it actually, it slows you down uh, and it can actually be very costly if your client market is, is the mass market in each of these countries. So we have to, I think, so, so there's different strategies in different markets. Some of the new African markets, the focus is purely on sort of the early adopted community, those with existing traditional investments, those with, sort of the, the banked segment of the market. In other markets, like, like in SA, it's it's also that, also focused on those with bank accounts and those that are included in the financial system. But we have a little bit more room because of scope of the operations, our established processes around education, the advanced stage of regulations that we can also now start to, to really focus on on providing a safe on-ramp for, for those in the in the unbanked sector. So so, so those those that are not financially included.
1: Yeah, in the past, we've had some terrific guests on the program, Ray Youssef of Paxful. You know, his Built with Bitcoin initiative seems to really go at the heart of the unbanked audience, like teaching basic financial literacy and then extending that to the opportunity provided by Bitcoin. We've also had the founders of Busha, one of the Nigerian exchanges on the program, and they told some really interesting stories about you know the challenges of international currency controls. And so anyone trying to run a business that you know imports goods or raw materials from outside of Nigeria is incredibly challenged by the traditional financial system. And, and Bitcoin and stable coins have sort of opened up a, a new financial services path for them. I'm curious your reaction to that. Like, is that consistent with what you're seeing in your business? where access to global markets is a big driver for customers of, of LUNO?
0: Firstly, I think it's hard to say that African crypto firms and, and also uh, invest, crypto investors and, and are probably some of the m- more, most resilient and, and creative people globally, considering the extreme operational challenges that we experience. Um, uh, but despite that, the African continent still contributed billions of dollars in dollars in transactional volumes. Right? I think in your report, you state that it represents 2.3% of, of, of global volumes. Yeah. But we, we categorize the, the use cases in two categories is those with, with with unmet needs. And I think that sums up, you know, the, the, the category of crypto is that buys crypto to as a hedge against political instability, as a hedge against local currency devaluation. Uh you mentioned uh, import restrictions and, and, and issues issues with cross border payments. That's absolutely also one of the one of the drivers and, and we're seeing that especially play out in Kenya and Nigeria where there's dollar shortages, individuals but also small businesses simply cannot cannot access Dollars to continue trading and to continue earning a living, right? And so I think there are definitely elements of that. It's much more difficult for us to distinguish in the data to say this customer is using crypto for remittances, you know, versus arbitrage trading, for example, between different crypto platforms. So, but but we know that the rise in adoption in Africa over the last ten years is primarily driven out of need, um, and it's been largely from a grassroots level perspective. And, and I think it just, again, shows the, the creativity. We, we, we issued a white paper a couple of years ago, and one of the key findings that we highlighted in there was that uh, people in Africa tend to be more creative in finding ways to supply for their families. Um, and, and so, you know, when people face hardship, where they need to put food on the table, when they need to pay for school fees, when they need to, to pay you know, for bonds, they tend to take on a little bit additional risk as well in trying to generate additional yield and you can you can argue that out of need but there's also an element you know in the, the need to generate higher yield on the and, and the need to, to let the money in and more return for them so yeah i think that um nigeria kenya and south africa is again different demographic different different reasons In SA you see more sophisticated crypto traders uh, traders trading high volumes high frequency low margins There is a rising uh, and growing arbitrage trading use case in SA as well. And that's primarily because of the price differences between the dollar price of crypto and global platforms like Coinbase, Bitstamp, and the RAM value of crypto in SA. And and that premium exists because of the existence of capital controls in SA. So it's not as easy to move funds cross-border and to move funds back into SA uh compared to other markets where, where capital controls are less right? so that premium exists and many of our traders and uh, which is good for liquidity and also good for stability of the local market trade arbitrage so so they move large volumes between local platforms and overseas platforms and in relatively small yield on those high volumes yeah, I think it's interesting to see within the same continent how different use cases have emerged, and and, and, and how and you know our people's need differs you know between different markets. But I just the one thing on remittances. I think, as I said, it's very difficult for us to to distinguish between regular crypto payments to 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 Bitcoin addresses and and remittances. I think probably the, the vast majority of the volume is still associated with Bitcoin as a store of value or, or Bitcoin as yeah. a means to speculate or to trade. Right? That's contrary to popular belief. I think, I think that's still, still the predominant use case across Africa.
1: The arbitrage trade is fascinating, right? Because that was some of the very early days of Bitcoin trading was the U.S. to Japan market arbitrage that I know made people a lot of money back in the earlier days of Bitcoin. I'm curious about something you said a couple of minutes ago about the the regulatory climate in South Africa. With previous guests, we've talked about some of the challenges in markets like Nigeria, where I would categorize it broadly as unfriendly towards crypto. Talk about the situation in South Africa. I'm much less familiar with that
0: in markets where governments do not impose regulatory bans right such as the one in nigeria you typically tend to see the market flourish grow more responsibly um, develop more responsibly and you see more interaction between the private sector and the public sector right and and, and i think that's the role that that we at know try to play we we share learnings and experiences that we've you know, gained and built up over the years with regulators in, in each of our markets For example, um, Luna was the first crypto exchange to obtain a a license through the Securities Commission in Malaysia in in 2019, so that really gave us good learnings to to share locally in SA. But um, the the relationship of the SA regulators have have been there right from the start. I recall, think back to uh, 2016, when we we did a pilot with the Reserve Bank and the FCA in the UK and one of the SA banks, where we tested a remittance product, so we, we were Included in the FCA's first cohort of companies in the in their sandbox, right? So the interactions with the SL Reserve Bank started 2015, 2016 already. I think they, from the start, have acknowledged that they need to stay ahead of the market, that they can't afford to ban crypto players from operating or ban the financial institutions from banking cryptocurrency businesses. And I think that has done a lot to ensure stability in the crypto market. So what we see in Nigeria, for example, and in Kenya is completely different. There's still the same need for crypto. So the overall volumes in the market stays the same. You don't see declining volumes or you don't see a, a, a declining demand for crypto. But you see crypto volume shift to to avenues that are less transparent and sort of more, more opaque. Right. In SA, vast majority of the crypto volumes have continued to grow through centralized exchanges that are registered with the local financial intelligence agencies that have clear lines of communication with the central bank and that are are able to to open up local bank accounts which makes it a lot safer for our customers to buy and sell crypto in their local fiat currency but long story short i think all of those efforts have culminated in the financial sector conduct authority kicking off the, the license regime so so all cryptocurrency asset service providers had to apply for a for a crypto specific financial service provider license between June and, and November this year, and we expect the first crypto FSP licenses to be awarded within the next couple of months. And I think that's a it's a watershed moment for the SA crypto industry. We 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 anticipate um, traditional financial institutions sitting on the sidelines to also enter the market. And as a fact, we know that many traditional firms that also applied for that license as well. So I think it's going to open up the market, hopefully inspire other African markets, you know, to follow suit.
1: It's such a good point. I mean, this is consistent with all the research we've done here at Chainalysis, which is bans don't work. You know, you can look at a market like China as a perfect example of this. Like the transaction activity that we can attribute into the Chinese inside the country there has not declined at all since the ban a few years ago. And I think your point about do we want transparency in the market? Do we want well-run companies that follow the law? Or do we wanna have kind of this black market operating on the side? Like that's a very clear choice, right? You you create a ban, you're gonna end up with this black or gray market type type operation or you can have a reasonable licensor scheme that provides transparency and responsibility throughout the ecosystem. So that's really exciting. I'm curious about your relationship with the traditional banking industry. Like if I'm living in South Africa and I've got rand and I want to turn that into tether or bitcoin, how difficult is it for me to get money out of my traditional bank account and actually use it to buy crypto? Like is it trivially uh, easy for me to transfer to Luno to my at Luno, or is that is that a difficult operation for folks?
0: No, so it's it's very easy, and we're fortunate enough to, to have banked with Standard Bank since 2013. So our, our bank relationship also spans 10 years now. Um, but it's 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 easy. Over the years, we've we've also evolved the buying of crypto. So initially, customers could only do normal bank transfer onto Luno. Obviously, with the delays and you know the the, the costs associated with normal bank transfers um and then a couple of years ago we've added card, card payment options as well so our south african customers can can buy crypto with debit or credit card um, and uh, more recently we've also added instant eft option so so it's it's very easy you can instantly buy crypto with rand and and when you want to withdraw your your, your rands we also process instant withdrawals so within you know two three minutes uh, the funds can reflect back in your bank account so so i think from an infrastructure perspective um south africa And and again, it comes back to our point around bans and the the unintended consequences of bans. So governments that impose bans expect bans to solve all the risks or to address the risks that they identify in terms of money laundering, in terms of illicit financing and and flows, volatility. But in fact, you know, it, it results in a more volatile crypto market, It results in much less visibility from a banking sector. And I have to say that I have to commend the SA Reserve Bank last year, around mid last year, they issued a guidance note to to, to local South African banks where they they cautioned them against the risks or the unintended consequences of de-risking their businesses from crypto and said that if you de-risk yourself from crypto, so if you close the bank account of a reputable, credible cryptocurrency firm, you reduce your ability to effectively monitor transactions because what is happening and that's what we're seeing in peer-to-peer markets in africa so the peer-to-peer business model absolutely gained a foothold in africa and it's great because it, it makes you know it makes it possible for africans to still purchase crypto but people still use their bank accounts to purchase crypto instead of sending them the, the payment to a centralized exchange with segregation of funds and controls uh, risk management etc that payment goes to another individual's bank at another bank. So the the, the flows within the banking system remains exactly the same. The counterparties to those transactions are just individuals that that banks do not necessarily have visibility on. So and that's the point that we've tried to to convey, you know, Pan-Africa to to regulators and and that's the role we're playing to this day. We had excellent workshops with with regulators recently in in other African markets where we really try and assist with the thinking, assist with the processes Uh, and yeah, I'm confident You know, there's a lot of potential, a lot of good potential for
1: African. It's really interesting. As someone living in the United States, the peer-to-peer market is not something that I think many people talk about. Like the entry point for a typical American is a firm like Coinbase, right? Publicly traded company in the United States, like very well known. They run ads on TV, or you know maybe one of the fintech providers like PayPal or or something like that, where you can now purchase kind of in the PayPal experience. So talk a little bit more about how people get involved in that peer-to-peer set up like if I wanted to buy crypto from somebody in a peer-to-peer marketplace, where do I even start? How what does that look
0: like? So you have you have two two different models. So so you have the completely underground epic model and that is where people meet in chat rooms on private messaging apps, for example, and they establish crypto groups and communicate and then send dms you know, and, and agree on a price and you have to then actually send fiat currency to stranger and hope and trust that they will release the crypto to you right so that's the that's the the one form of the other form is entities companies offering a, a crypto custodial service so so they enable you to store your crypto on, on the platform but the, the fiat leg happens peer to peer right so it's almost like a like an online uh, marketplace. In, in SA, is a company called Gumtree, right, where you can sell Facebook marketplace, for example. Right? Those models have absolutely gained a foot out since the ban in, in Nigeria um, in 2021. But in Kenya, since 2016, right, uh, Lino actually operated in Kenya. We had operations in Kenya, we had growing customer base uh, until a similar ban was was put in place in the end of 2015. And since 2016, the peer-to-peer model actually being the de facto model for way for Kenyans to, to access crypto and they know no other model. Right. So and I, and I think and that's what I mentioned right at the start, the African landscape has grown very little. There's been a massively growing in demand, but the infrastructure across Africa has remained relatively the same since 2016. You have no new centralized exchanges operating in any African markets. You have one or two new peer to peer platforms. But for most part, the infrastructure is completely the same, right? And and that's a it's a massive challenge, and it's one of the reasons why you're only seeing 2.3% contribution to global volumes. It's because of a lack of infrastructure. You know, that's partly what we aspire to do to help solve those challenges, to make it easier and safer for people in Africa to access crypto.
1: Yeah, that last point about safer that that's what strikes me as as someone that's never used one of these peer peer-to-peer services. It seems ripe for you know scam activity. Right where I'm, I'm advertising. Send me money. I'll send you Bitcoin, and then I never send the Bitcoin. That seems like a, a fairly easy scam to run all over the place, right?
0: Yeah. So I think in the in the private the private messenger chat room rooms, I think there's a real risk there. But yeah. the 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 second model, the a centralized entity is the custodian. They won't release the crypto to the buyer unless the seller confirmed that they've made payment, right? So there's some measure yeah. of control, but there's yeah. still some exploitation that that's taking place as well. So
1: um I'm curious kind of more broadly when you think about the scams and other types of fraud happening. Like how do you approach that? I would imagine it's it's challenging in certain markets where you have a relatively, you know, newer population of users who are learning about crypto for the first time. It seems like they're gonna be primed to chase, you know, the advertisement for the unreasonably high yield savings opportunity. I, I would imagine you all spend quite a bit of time thinking about how to protect users.
0: No, definitely. And I think uh, last year in, in South Africa, or earlier this year, the, the industry got together um, and we worked with the Advertising Regulatory Board, which is the the, the watchdog for, for public advertising. And you we know, created those efforts and we, we drafted crypto-specific inclusion for the product advertising practice. And, and that's been accepted, it's been published, it's been updated. And... Uh, you know, certain rules have been put in place, for example, you have to include risk warnings in any in, in ad, um, you know, um, and, and it provides rails and guidelines to broadcasters that started accepting advertising money from scammers in South Africa and they have to do, you know, a lot of due diligence now before they accept any advertising money. So I think that's a good example of how the industry came together and we decided we need to address this issue. But from a Luno you know, specific perspective, you know, try and attack this problem from many different perspectives. I think firstly from a technology side of things. And of course we used analysis and for that and and so now this is the just the, the on chain visibility that we have, that we have through that, I think has helped us to prevent customers from sending crypto to to potential scams. I think the you know two one recent example in the SAE is is Trading International, where through analysis we were able to identify and our know, customers were sending crypto to this scam. Uh, at first we warned them and and, and later, later on we, we actually blocked the payment. So we, we knew it was a confirmed scam. It was internal analysis a list of, of confirmed global scams, right? So from a technology perspective, we rely a lot on our service providers. To do the monitoring um, we also uh, obviously the issue of phishing and fake websites and impersonation yeah. is also is also quite real and through a, a partnership with the service provider we were able to remove more than 200 fake phishing links or fake you websites over the last 12 months and more than a thousand fake social media profiles. So you know we, we're really trying to clean to clean that up as much as possible. And then we have a we have a, a quite a big anti-financial crime team as well, um, and, and they they have relationships with local banks in the um, had in, in Nigeria as well. And we we also then sort support the banks in, in in investigating and also recovering payments made into our bank accounts that that was a suspect so on many fronts it's, it's a big issue and it's crippling and actually term activity was one of the main reasons why Lena had to had to exit markets like Zambia and markets like Uganda eventually um, because of absolute rising scams making it very, very difficult to operate in those countries.
1: Wow. And this was because you had people who were impersonating Luno or Luno executives and ripping people off?
0: Yeah, so 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 that and people pretending to be to be agents of Lunos, Luno sale people, um, offering returns to the to the general public. People, you know, with the apology then, you know, that out people scammers started reporting Luno you know, to law enforcement saying that Luno you know, stole my funds or Luno you know, you know, you know, lost my money you know, in the hope that there is a settlement payment or there is a, there's a bribe or something. And, and so it, it just became so crippling and it's, it's a real challenge and then people always understand the cost of operating in, in any market if you yeah. follow a centralized exchange model, but more but so in emerging markets where you have to build the inter- infrastructure, the integrations between banks and, and, and the exchanges. We have to build that from scratch, right? It's a real challenge.
1: I saw that even you were were a victim of this, where someone ripped off your LinkedIn profile and was running around offering crypto services using your photo and and your your background.
0: It's one of those things. I think um, my wife obviously had a heart attack when she saw that. And <laughs> she actually also got impersonated. Um, <laughs> oh, no! Um, but but I think it's part of the game. You know, there will always be bad actors out there trying and and deceive the public and get the public to part ways with their hard-earned money. And we just, we have a big responsibility as, as the industry, not, not only Luna, but all exchanges, whether you, you know, peer-to-peer or centralized exchange, we all have a big, big responsibility to act as the first line of defense for our customers, right? So it's, a, it's an area of the business where we continue to invest in terms of headcount, in terms of financial resources. And as I said, you know, it, it, uh, just using technology has, has been, has been greatly, greatly useful for us in that regard.
1: I'm curious uh, internationally, maybe zooming out from Africa a little bit. I know that Luno recently left the Singapore market, and I'm, I'm just curious if you can share kind of the strategy and drivers behind that business decision. In terms of
0: Singapore, I think that was purely a business decision for us, uh, you know, in evaluating our strategy and our, our global footprint. We still have uh, operations in Malaysia and in Indonesia. As I said, we fully licensed crypto exchange in Malaysia. We have a local office in, 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 in KL as well. Malaysia, in fact, is our second largest market globally for Luna. Still fully investing in the region, uh, Southeast Asian region. It's it's still an important, it's important, important continent for us or area for us. We've always been pro-regulation. We've always worked very closely with authorities in the UK, uh, you know, to ensure compliance, whether this was enforced or not. We follow a proactive approach there. So adapting to the to working with regulators in the UK was was nothing new new for us, right? Um, it's part of part of our our DNA. The recently announced UK regulations, the FinProm regulations. I think it's an important step for the crypto industry. Industry, and it supports Luno's mission to to ensure that all our customers invest responsibly. So I think we are working very closely with the FCA in the UK. We still we still operate in the market. We've not exited the market per se. Uh, we're still serving our existing customers. Uh, you know, in the most resp- the, the most responsible way possible. And, you know, we will continue to, to be agile and adapt uh, to regulations. So-
1: it's one of the things that's really interesting to me as we look at kind of the evolution of the regulatory landscape and kind of the relationship between crypto industry and traditional financial industry that's driving, you know, entry into new markets. Because I think you've also just recently won regulatory approval in France, and I would assume that's, you know, under the new uh, Mika regime in Europe. And so it seems like there's kind of a push and pull action happening, right? Like a lot of companies that I've spoken to recently have either exited the U.S. market or contemplating that decision because of the lack of of regulatory regime here in the U.S. And it seems like there's a draw into the the European market. Am I thinking about that correctly?
0: Uh, I think so. I think there's a clear theme globally now and we see the regulators moving into two directions. So I think the first theme of bucket is annual regulations. And I have to say it's been fairly consistent across across most global markets, and that's things like AML, you know, screening transactions, being having, having the ability and the expertise to to report on suspicious activity, and so that would typically require registration with a local financial intelligence agency. That's one of the first steps we take, um, you know, when we consider moving into a new market. Is it possible for you know to register with the local financial intelligence centre? And then secondly, from a market conduct perspective, there has to be a regime from a market conduct perspective that scrutinizes the operating models of, of crypto asset service providers, ensures that they have sufficient capital, they have the skills, the ability to actually safeguard customer funds, to safeguard customer information, and to ensure that they have good corporate governance. And, and I think those, if you, if you consider those things that I just mentioned now, I think those were probably some of the main reasons that led to FTX's downfall as well. Proper risk management, the lack of proper risk management, the lack of good corporate governance, right? You know, those two, those two regulatory themes, we, we absolutely welcome. But, you know, from a centralized exchange perspective, I think there are many other challenges, right? Firstly, the cost to enter and localize your operations in an African market, you know, or any market for that matter, with relatively low levels of adoption can be extremely costly. Um, secondly, liquidity. Right? So in many cases in Africa, and I think that's, that's why we've seen limited growth in, in other markets outside these, these core countries, is there's simply not sufficient liquidity locally. So mm-hmm. if you think of a use case like remittances, right? Someone, the African diaspora that resides in Malawi, works in South Africa and they need to send money back home to, to their family. They cannot spend their crypto in Malawi because vendors, you know, vendors don't accept crypto as a means of payment. And it's not easy for them to convert their Bitcoin into local currency. So the lack of liquidity in these markets also make it less appealing to global crypto businesses to to set up operations there because it takes between three to four years to build up sufficient liquidity you reach a point where you're able to to provide a fair quote to a customer when they want to buy crypto the sufficient liquidity not only on the buyer side but also on the sell side so it must be as easy as a selling coin as it was when you when you bought the coin initially so yeah there, there are many challenges you know, from that perspective, but mainly regulatory uncertainty that is making banks the de facto regulators in many African markets. So so the banks decide we get to play or we get to stay stay away. And, and secondly, the lack of liquidity locally. Um, and also because of the fact that many African markets have exchange control regimes. So it's very difficult to send dollars in and to send dollars out as well.
1: It's fascinating to watch the ebb and flow of uh, into and out of other markets. And shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious your take on DeFi, and this is something that I'm always interested in the the perspective of the centralized exchange operator in the realm of this new layer of technology that I think in some ways is is seen as complementary to centralized exchanges. In other cases, I think people imagine sort of DeFi becomes the future of all crypto exchange. Right? It's it's all facilitated by a smart contract. Living on on chain rather than, you know, a company really operating there. What, what's your take?
0: Yeah, I think centralized exchanges and decentralized platforms, I think they're, they're complementary, right? And yeah. um, centralized exchanges make it possible for people to, to enter to enter the, the crypto, the crypto landscape using the fiat currency. Um, I'm particularly excited about the potential for DeFi in, in Africa, because we have a new generation of, of investors investors that don't necessarily hold traditional assets, it's people that for the first time have been able to, to come online, get access to a smartphone with the internet, that don't necessarily have traditional investments, traditional investment apps, you know, for many reasons, but, you know, for example, they, they cannot meet the minimum deposit requirements, uh, you know, so, so crypto created a, a absolutely new class of investors across across the African market. And I think for the first time, it, it's going to give those investors holding crypto assets access, you know, for example, to capital. So they can, through decentralized platforms and protocols, Actually, borrow funds uh, yeah. against against the crypto collateral to start out the local businesses, you know, in, in in Africa. And I think that is probably the most exciting use case for me, locally in, in, on the African continent. It's it's the power of crypto re- at yeah. play real real time, right? From a Luna perspective, I think we obviously, and as I said, we think that we are complementary to many of the services offered by decentralized finance, lending, borrowing, staking yield farming. We recently launched, a, you know, Ethereum staking and Cardano staking wallets as well. But I but I think you know you know we, we, we think that sensible long term approach, getting the basics done right, that's our core mission at this moment. And uh, and we think that will give us as as a business the best shot at upgrading the, the financial system, playing that role as people's first experience with the crypto market.
1: I'm curious too about real world asset tokenization. Like this is in the headlines of all the crypto trade trade publications that I read regularly, it seems to be one of the hotter areas. Are, are you seeing any moves in, in South Africa or maybe more broadly on the continent to tokenize you know, corporate debt or, or government debt and actually put that on chain? Yeah, so I think,
0: uh, again, um, markets where, where there are more regulatory clarity, I think you, you tend to see more conversations like this taking place. Pan Africa, absolutely zero, um, that I'm aware of, but in South Africa specifically, there are many financial institutions that are exploring opportunities to, to tokenize corporate debt, for example, you know, putting bonds on the blockchain, tokenizing bonds. So yeah, so there, there are really interesting opportunities, uh, likely in SA, and, and I think, Probably relatively soon, traditional crypto exchanges will probably soon evolve the, the offering from, from pure cryptocurrency tokens to, to more you know, real world assets as well. So it's an avenue that's going to open up significantly over the next, the next 12 to 24 months in the same.
1: Yeah, it's exciting. This has been a a fascinating conversation. I I love to end the episode looking to the future. When you've got eight years of experience in this industry, which is is probably a lifetime for most people. I'm curious, what are you thinking about over the next year to two years as being most exciting in the the crypto landscape and for Luno's business?
0: Yeah, I think firstly, I think we will start seeing exponential growth. I think not from a crypto price perspective, but the the after effects of properly well run a regulated crypto market. Not talking about crypto assets itself as being regulated. I'm talking about regulation around the platforms, the intermediaries that provide crypto-related services. I think you know, as we've seen in the U.S. and and you know, each of these regions are on different different maturity and different growth growth curves. Right. We've we've seen. Financial institutions into the, the the market in the US two, three, four years ago, right? In SA, that's about to happen. And I think that's hugely exciting. It's going to lead to a lot of inflows of capital into the crypto market locally. It's going to lead to a more robust, stable crypto industry as well. Um, and it's going to lead to more partnerships between crypto firms and traditional firms to drive adoption. So I think... In the institutional opportunities in the SA, I think, and and, and as soon as regulations become clearer, in Kenya and Nigeria will be absolutely huge and will have a massive impact in the, the adoption curve of crypto locally. You know, for example, quite a large chunk of the, the, the SA population with disposable income use financial advisory firms to manage all their investments. At this moment, no financial advisory firm are able to render financial advice or intermediary services with regards to cryptocurrency, right? So that opens, the, the regulatory regime will open up and, and create a completely new new set of potential investors into the market. I think we will continue to see Bitcoin as a store of value or crypto as a store of value as the, probably the most predominant use case. Although we've had exciting projects in South Africa over the last couple of months uh, on the, the, the crypto as a payment channel, payment network use case. So one of the largest grocery um, outlets in SAP can pay. A couple of months ago announced that it's not possible for you to to buy groceries with Bitcoin. So at checkout you scan a QR code. Luna has also enabled that that feature so Luna you know, clients can spend their crypto. That's just the, the very, very early stages of of the spend use case. And I think it will develop as as we see more Critical mass of crypto holders. That spend spend use case and payments use case will start to develop. For now, I think from a transactional perspective, it will probably still be 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 limited to to cross-border payments remittances in you know and in emerging markets at large. And then, yeah, I think I'm extremely. Positive about Luno's prospects over the next 12 months to to continue to evolve in a in a in a crypto app, um, to continue to build on our current suite of products, staking uh, 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 crypto bundles, and to continue to upgrade our product in line with what our customers want. And then lastly, I'm very excited and passionate about the impact that crypto can have on people people across the African market. That's mainly why I'm I'm still in the crypto industry eight, eight years later. So. I'm hugely excited about countries like Ghana, countries like Kenya, countries like Uganda, to work with Lino and to, to put Lino in a position, you know, to be able to offer, you know, a safe and easy way for, for people in those markets to also act, to also access crypto. So so I think yeah, I'm very, very, very excited about the prospects for, for crypto in the African market. And yeah, will be working day and night at Lino you know, to, to make that a reality.
1: Really exciting. Maurice, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Public Key.
0: Awesome. Thank you again. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hey there.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So do me a favor. Right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app, You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube, sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter, and of course, follow us on X or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Now, after years of speculation on how blockchains could augment video games with player rewards and ownership of digital content like NFTs, Axie Infinity burst onto the scene in 2020 and became the biggest Web3 video game anyone had seen. But then, unfortunately, Axie Infinity suffered a massive hack losing over $600 million from their cross-chain bridge protocol. And we've seen some serious declines in usage since then. But many remain excited about how blockchains, video games, and the metaverse can intersect to create new economic paradigms in the world's biggest entertainment industry. And those changes could benefit both players and the companies that create the games. So this week, our team has a great new blog that's focused on the fundamentals of blockchain gaming and includes some analysis of projects that are successfully utilizing blockchain tech. and also discusses where some of the limitations and challenges still exist head down to the show notes you'll find the link to the recent blog enjoy